All right, so I've titled this, A Prophet is Not Without, and dot, dot, dot. And that was both dramatic and also allowed me to fit on one line, so it worked out very well. Now, he's not without what? He's not without honor, except in his own house in the, or in his own town, his own country. And so the general rule is that prophets tend to be, or people with gifting in general, tend to be underappreciated around those who are very familiar with them. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for this. One, they become accustomed to and entitled to the giftings of the other person. And two, they are familiar with their past. And they think, you're not so different from me. You're not so much better than me. You don't, you don't have some grand past that is mysterious that makes it so that I have a basis for believing that you are some guru or great man. Instead, I know that you drank the same water I drank and you lived in the same place, ate the same food, and had the same basic upbringing. And so there's this way in which there's a looking down on people who we have familiarity with. This is one of the reasons why, for example, in most evangelical churches and also most other religious institutions, people don't typically raise up leaders from their midst. What they do is they tend to bring people in from the outside so that they can have some basis for believing that this person is better than the people that they know. Because the mystery allows them to believe that that's somehow the case. They get to know the person, they find that the person's a disappointment, and then they replace the person. Right? This is the common way. This is the way this gets done. And so there is this cycle of, well, maybe the next one will be better. And so what we need to realize is that the scriptures warn us of this. The scriptures often warn us of sin tendencies, and the reason they warn us of sin tendencies is to help us to avoid falling in the pit. It's like a warning sign next to a hole that you might fall into. The warning sign is not there so that afterwards people can tell you told you so. It is to prevent you from falling into the hole. And so this idea is we need to be aware that there's a danger in despising gifts from God when we're familiar with them. There's a danger of despising gifting in other people when they have grown up around us. There is a danger in undermining the way that the church is supposed to operate in terms of raising up its own leaders. And this happens even to Christ. So this is not just because of the failings of people. Christ has no failings. There is nothing to find fault in him. And so yet still, there is a weakness of the people who were to be his followers. So let's consider that and we'll look at uh, how that happens here. So... We have been considering also a progress through the book. I want to remind you, the beginning of the book taught us about the relationship of Christ to the tabernacle. What was that? The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt with man. And so we have Christ, we have God uh, tabernacling with us, dwelling with us. And so there is this building of the tabernacle of the earth and also of the body of Christ. And there is this coming of his uh, human nature into the world so that there is a way in which there's a special way in which God is dwelling with us in the Incarnation. We then considered the idea that there's sort of a walking through the tabernacle. We're on a tour through the tabernacle as we go through the book of John. And we consider the idea of the offering of Christ as a sacrifice, as the Lamb who pays for the sins of the world. We have the idea of cleansing in terms of a removal of, of stain and sin. We have this idea of of, of sanctification. And then there's this, the showbread loaded with cakes and chalices. So this is the nourishing work. So we continue to be in this idea of sort of the, the nourishing uh, and the giving of strength. And this sign even has to do with that, taking one who is sick, giving him strength and causing him to be raised off of 
his sickbed. So let's look at verse 43, page 2 of the outline. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. So we've been in Samaria. We've been thinking about the fact that here's an apostate people. Here are people who have declined away from the proper way of worshiping God. They have declined away from uh, the, the proper forms. And there has been a separation. We looked at the history previously. And so now... Christ has left there. But we found that there was a big response that Jesus was there, that people believed him. Um, the woman at the well believed him. Her testimony was used to cause others to believe. And then when they come and talk to Christ, many more believe. And he stayed there for two days to teach them and to give them the basics of the new covenant. So then in verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So he's returning to Galilee, which is where he spent his days, especially in his childhood. And we know that Nazareth in Galilee is where that occurred. Um, We know that Jesus uh, flees from Israel to go to Egypt because of the Herodian slaughter of the innocent, where the children in and around Bethlehem were killed. And Joseph flees with his family to Egypt to avoid the tyranny of the slaughter of the children. There's then a return to Israel, to Galilee, and that time of the youth of Jesus is in Nazareth. And so we see Galilee, Nazareth, emphasized as his place of origin, and so there's a clouding of this idea of him being born in Bethlehem. Now, Verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So he goes, he goes to Galilee, and in Galilee there's a way in which he's going to not receive honor. This is a proverb, uh, I have Calvin's commentary here, and what he says about this line, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Calvin says the following, Doubtless this was a common proverb, and we know that proverbs are intended to be graceful expressions of what usually and most often happens. Therefore, in these instances, we do not have to rigidly demand uniform accuracy, as if what the proverb states is always true. Certainly, prophets are usually appreciated more in countries other than their own. It also may happen, and sometimes does, that a prophet is not less honored by his countrymen than by strangers. However, this proverb states that what normally happens, that prophets receive honor more readily in any place other than than from their own people. And so the contrast that we have to look at right now is what happens in Samaria compared to what happens now in Galilee. So that's the thing to consider in a contrast. Now, the Galileans receive him in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Now, what he did at the feast would be things that relate to signs, and also we remember back in chapter 2 when he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, he cleansed the temple. He's flipping over tables, and he also, uh, when people ask him for the authority of which he's doing it, uh, what sign he would give, he tells them about the sign of his resurrection, which is a way of insulting them because the asking for a sign indicates a faithlessness, and so there's the sign of Jonah, the sign of uh, someone being dead and then being raised is meant to be something that is a statement of condemning them for the fact that they don't have faith. So, 
we have the fact that they've seen what happened in Jerusalem. They, they receive him, having seen these things. Now, we also know this is Cana of Galilee, and that's where he did his first sign, right? He turned the water into wine at the wedding. And so this is a second sign in this place. These people are familiar with what he did at the, at the wedding in Cana. They're familiar with what he's done in Jerusalem. They are aware of his extraordinary character being the place that he spent much of his youth. And so, all of this, they receive him. So, Galilee receives him on the basis of the signs they'd already seen. So how was Jesus not given honor? Their faithlessness and the smallness of the faith of Israel, of Galilee, of Nazareth, of his own adoptive father's house, even his brothers don't believe in him at this time, this faithlessness, or the smallness of faith, is to be contrasted. And we'll see what happens following here. Verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman, and that word is rooted in the word basileus, and it's an alteration of it, and it has to do with a royal official. And so the, it's more indicating the fact that he has some sort of office or station reporting to uh, a, a govern, governor or a king. So he's not just a nobleman in the way we might think of like in medieval Europe, where there's some sort of a, uh, an inherited title. This is more the fact that he simply fills an official office. There's a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Okay, now, sometimes we equate Judea and Israel in our minds, and I want to remind you to not do that. Okay? Uh, Judea is very specifically the land of the tribe of Judah, which would be in the south of Israel. Galilee is not being said here to be outside of Israel. It's being said to be outside of Judea. And so what we have is Galilee is a part of Israel. We're told, for example, that when Christ returns from Egypt to Galilee, that he's returning to Israel. Okay? So, so we need to recognize the difference here between Judea and Israel. So he is uh, coming out of Judea and going into Galilee. So this nobleman return, goes to Jesus and implores Jesus to come with him to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The son was at the point of death. So notice here, what does this man believe? He believes that Jesus has some sort of legitimate power whereby he can heal his son even from a sickness that is so intense that the son is on the point of death. It seems like a lot of faith. So where is the weakness of faith? How is this no honor? Well, I would like to continue, and I'd like to contrast it with something. Hey, look at verse 49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The word sir is curie, which means Lord. Okay, so Lord. This isn't just Sir, this is Lord. Now in English, Sir is kind of the best we have to indicate that. And so, but this word, he's calling him Lord. He's acknowledging an authority. Think about this for a second. He's a royal official. And he's calling him Lord. He's a royal official. And he's calling him Lord. So he's acknowledging Christ as being superior in his rank. 
He seems to believe that Jesus' power may require his local presence. This is what seems to be indicated. So now let's contrast this with the Gentile centurion that is referenced in Matthew 8 and also in Luke 7. Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. This centurion understood that the locality of Christ was not necessarily indicative of where his power was. He understood that the power of Christ was a power that was omnipresent. He understood that the authority of Christ was the authority of God. And so calling him Lord and saying he's not worthy to have him in his house and saying that he understands that the authority that Jesus has is able to go and get the thing done wherever is an indicator of greater faith. It's knowing more truth. So the way in which Christ is not honored is the slowness to believe. And the slowness to believe doesn't just look like hesitancy. The slowness to believe is a slowness to draw out implications. A slowness to draw out implications. We should read the Bible and we should believe every word. We should believe every proposition. And we should also believe the immediate inferences. And we should draw out syllogistically from a couple of propositions, conclusions that are additional propositions. We should be able to see connections and connect things and see the systematic arrangement and to draw out inferences that are necessary. Being slow to believe is not just doubting the explicit things that are said. It is also being slow to understand the meaning of things and being slow to draw out the implications and being slow to apply. And so what we find is a zeal and a swiftness for the truth of God in Samaria with these people who hear a prophet who is not from their midst. And yet, here in Galilee, in Cana of Galilee, there is a smallness of faith. And this is given to us to point not only to what happens at that very local place, but also the general problem that occurs when contrasting the Gentile response of the coming of the gospel with the response of Israel. And the response of Israel is many who are in the visible church, many who are in the religious institution authorized by God, are those who reject Christ. 
and do not apply what is said or cowardly about it. And so there is a smallness of faith or a faithlessness. And then we see on the other side these Gentiles or Samaritans as a declining and apostate people who quickly receive the word and react strongly. Why is that? Is that because they are more noble than the Jews in and of themselves? No. It's the grace of God, and it was prophesied. And what this is for is for the purpose of bringing about the rejection of Christ, so that by the rejection of Christ by Israel, and therefore the throwing off of Israel, there can be an acceptance of all of the nations, and then ultimately a restoring of Israel. That's what we're told by Paul in the book of Romans. Now, page 4, I have for you the Luke, Lucan account of the centurion story. And there's a couple of uh, significant things I want to point out simply because in case you read them and compare them. In the text in Matthew, the way you read it, you would naturally take it as the centurion comes in person to talk to Jesus himself, and that is all. So these are either two accounts or one is a summary. Luke gives, for example, that the centurion did not feel that he was fit to even come to Jesus directly. And so he sends Jewish leaders of the synagogue, he sends elders to speak to him. Then the, Jesus comes and he gets close to the house and the centurion hears that Jesus is getting close and he sends servants to say, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Now, these words are his words, whether they come through intermediaries or whether they come directly from his mouth into the ears of Jesus. And so I don't think that there's a contradiction between these texts. One simply gives more detail. I think it is not two separate events, but one, and there's one with simply more detail. And so what we have is the same thing occurring, and one uses intermediaries, and the other one does no reference to intermediaries, but plainly simply says that the centurion said these things, which he did through intermediaries. Think about this. If you send somebody to make a deal on your behalf and he agrees to the deal, you are bound to it because they are your words because he's your agent. So when you empower a messenger, when you empower someone to take action on your behalf, they become your actions in law. And that is the, the point. And so the centurion is still to be honored whether he spoke to Jesus face to face or whether he used intermediaries. They are both acts of great faith. And his being startled as he finds that Jesus is coming near indicates that the first intermediaries, the Jews, didn't quite communicate the level to which the centurion's faith existed. They ask him to come to heal, and the centurion is startled as he hears that Jesus is coming closer. He sends out servants to stop Jesus from coming closer, from coming to the house, to save him the additional travel. And so this is a way in which you have, again, in the Lucan text, a contrast between the faith of Israel versus the faith of a Gentile. Now, page four. As we continue through, verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Okay, so this man has faith. And he's being told things explicitly and he's going along. Okay, so this is a smallness of faith, not a faithlessness. Now, how large does a faith need to be for it to be a saving faith? The smallest of faith. So, smallness of faith is not the difference between whether you are justified before God Almighty or not. 
The smallness of faith will affect how useful you are. Largeness of faith allows you to take action faster, to take bolder steps, to have more powerful profession, to be able to communicate to others more clearly and to answer objections and to understand where things are going better. The smallness of faith and the largeness of faith are not things that differentiate saved from not saved. But they do differentiate the level of usefulness in this life and the level of reward that we will receive. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. So now he comes and he bears testimony to his household. And his household believes. And now this man was a man who was already waiting for the Messiah. He believed the reports about Christ. And he sought Christ out to heal his son. And yet, and he had prepared his house. His house is a house where you know, he's a believing man. He is an Israelite. He has catechized his house. And when he comes back and brings this teaching to his house, his house is quick to believe. His report. And so all of this we go, this is excellent. This is great. This is better than what we expect to see today, generally, in families and churches. To see a house that's prepared. To see a house that's being taught. To have a father actually spiritually leading the house. And so all of that's there. And yet, the contrast is still with the reality that there is a smallness and slowness to faith. And I would suggest to you that you have seen this often when you interact, for example, with people who have known you before you were converted or who have known you before your life was well put together or more godly or more serious, that when you talk to them and show them the things you know now and point to the ways in which your life has changed and all that, that there's a slowness for them to hear the Word. There's a slowness for them to want to listen And so you experience this lack of honor in your own hometown. What I want to encourage you is that you should tell the people that you know about Christ. You should tell the people that you know about how to grow in the knowledge of God. Seeing those who are nominally Christian or who are weakly reformed or whatever, you should try to talk to them about these things and to disciple them and bring them along. But furthermore, you should realize that The Lord is likely to bless you in talking to people that you don't know or that you meet after your conversion. There's a funny way in which they will find you to be more credible than the people who have known you longer. Now, it should be the case that the people who saw you and have seen the change should see the power of the message. But so often we place our faith in men rather than in what God has said. Now, It is often the case that when God converts a person of authority, like the father who is the head of a house, the result is that it brings the whole of the institution to order and reformation. And that's part of the reason why it is 
a common thing that you will see, for example, in the book of Acts where Paul is talking, he looks for opportunities to talk to magistrates. He looks for opportunities to speak to men in the public sphere. He looks for opportunities to engage with leaders in the church and to deal with the synagogues or the Old Covenant churches in a way where he's interacting on the public level. And so you find that there's a looking for what's the highest level that somebody will talk to you. Because that's looking for efficient and decisive means of bringing about reformation. One of the things that has happened in the American church is largely a finding that it is difficult to get men to do what pastors want. And so there has been an effort to go around them and to have women's ministries and children's ministries and to try to deal with people on an individualized basis. And so I want to suggest to you the pattern of Scripture is to seek to go through the ordinary means of the authority structure of a household. And so the church, for example, and pastoral office ought to seek to principally engage with head of a house. And that is to help to enforce and encourage the proper structure of a home. Now when men do reject, should men refuse to preach to wives and children? No. And ladies, if you have friendships with women in a house, should you not talk to them and only talk to the husband about the Christian religion? No. Children, should you refuse to talk to your friends about Christ? No. You should all speak to everyone you know about Christ and the application of his word. But men, it is our duty to find opportunity to talk to heads of house and to seek to see reformation and to encourage those men to believe and to be able to lead their families in reformation. Now go to page five. This sign is called the second sign. We talk about the healing of the son here of this man, is the second sign. There were signs in Jerusalem back in John 2. They're referenced again in John 4. And the Galileans have seen it. So why is this called the second sign? Is it the second sign that Jesus ever did? No. It's the second sign that's explicitly explained in the book of John. And it's also the second sign that occurs specifically here in Galilee, in Cana. And so there's two ways in which it's the second. But I want to suggest to you that the more important way is simply the way it's the second sign in the book of John and the fact that it's in the same place is to emphasize the fact that these Galileans should have a quickness and largeness to their faith they have been around Jesus a lot and they have seen him do a lot they have had a longer exposure to his ministry than anybody else so what this does for us is it sets up for us a way of thinking about the relationship of signs to faith so I want you to look down at 13D2. <laughs> this is about the battle relating to signs that I emphasized in John. We're going to find as we go through the book of John that Jesus repeatedly teaches people that faith should not depend upon seeing signs and wonders. Yet, at the same time, signs and wonders increase responsibility when you see them or hear of them. And even if faith is weak, it should be encouraged by signs and wonders. Those signs and wonders should not be sought as necessary for faith. I hope that helps you to have a proper view of signs and wonders, miracles. And what is the difference between a supernatural thing and a miracle? There are distinct things. My hope is that this is not the first time you're hearing this. A supernatural thing 
can be visible or invisible. Regeneration, the new birth, is a supernatural work of God. But it is not visible. You cannot see when a person is converted. You can see signs of it, like a profession of faith or good fruit, good works. But you cannot see the actual work of regeneration. Signs and wonders are visible supernatural works. And they are caused by God to bring attention to prophets and also to prophecy. They bring attention to prophets and to prophecy. And the idea here is that they are a visible sign of the supernatural work of revelation that's occurring. We have talked a good deal about lying signs and wonders. So you know that simply because there is a supernatural sign, it does not mean infallibly that everything the person says is true. But these are things that cause a drawing of attention. And so even if there's weak faith, there should be an examining of what is said, an encouragement by the signs and wonders, and an accepting of the true message if it is from a true messenger. All right, look at point 14. The belief of the apostate and declined Samaritans is to be contrasted here with the belief of Israel, which is the visible church of the time. And this helps us to see the disappointment of the Old Covenant and the hope of the New Covenant. What is the disappointment of the Old Covenant? The Old Covenant had all sorts of outward signs. We talked about this last time. Remember, we looked through the, the chapter on the difference of the administration of the covenant. We talked about the old signs, the Paschal Lamb, the Temple, and the all of those external smells and bells, all the pomp and outward glory of the Old Covenant, and how it was effectual at that time to build up the elect unto salvation. And yet, when we look at the New Covenant, what we have is a simple external ministry. The removal of that outward pomp and glory, and it is a simplified and transportable system so that it can go out to the whole world. And there's a promise that the lower outward glory new covenant system comes with an increase of effect. And that's what's happening here. We're being shown the disappointment in terms of the old covenant and the people of Israel in contrast to the power going out of these people who have not been prepared, who have not been deeply taught, who do not have generations of increase that has been going on. So I want you to go to page 6. And I would like to show you Hebrews 8, which gives to us some key thoughts about the difference between the Old and New Covenant. So before we read this, let me remind you of a couple of key things. The Bible is divided into two major legal structures. The first structure is the covenant of works. God told Adam, do this and live. That happens in Genesis 1 and 2. We see the fall. And in Genesis 3, we have the curse. But there's also, in Genesis 3, the giving of the promise of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. So we have the giving of the gospel for the first time there in Genesis 3.15. So Adam is given a covenant of grace. The just shall live by faith. It works as an instrument versus faith as an instrument. Now, we go from Adam to Noah 
to Abraham, to Moses, to David. And that's all the covenant of grace. And we get to Christ. That's the covenant of grace. Now those five that came before are all the old covenant. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. That is the covenant of grace. Salvation by the promised Messiah looking forward to His death and sacrifices to look forward as types and shadows. And the new covenant, Christ accomplishes. He does what those sacrifices foreshadow. And now we have a change of outward symbols. And the change of outward symbols makes it so that we look backward. As opposed to types and shadows to look forward, what we have is reminders of what has already been done. So Hebrews 8 tells us about what was promised back in Jeremiah with the New Covenant. And talks about this change. It's a change. The Old Covenant and New Covenant are united as one covenant of grace, but they have a change in terms of the outward elements and in terms of the promises of what will be accomplished with these outward elements. So Hebrews 8.1 Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. It's always nice when somebody tells you here's the main point. When you go, okay, I stopped listening a while ago, but you've told me that this is the main point, so it's time to zero back in. Catch me up. This is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Okay, so here's what's being contrasted. A tabernacle that is built by men and a tabernacle that is built by God. What are these two tabernacles? Well, one tabernacle is the tabernacle that was given to Moses that men literally built with their hands. The other one is the tabernacle that is Christ and His body, the church, which fills the earth. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. That was true. Think about this. What is he saying in verse 4? The author of Hebrews is saying in verse 4 that even now, at the time of the writing, this is after Christ had died, This is in that period of time before 70 A.D. after Christ had died. There were still Levitical priests in the temple during this time offering sacrifices according to the law, according to the Old Covenant who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So this is one of those texts that shows us the idea of, of shadows. Okay, and so this, this, it's a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. What's the heavenly thing? It's the true tabernacle. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. So Moses gave this. He was commanded by God to do it. And it was a copy and shadow. Now as a copy, it has symbolism that points to things to teach us. And as a shadow... It's looking to substance. The substance casts the shadow. 
For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So Moses was required to follow the regulated principle. To not add stuff on that he wanted to. I think we should add a basketball court to the tabernacle. He made it according to the pattern shown on the mountain. And if that applied to the shadow, do you think that applies to the substance? If the substance cast the shadow and it was important that Moses made sure to make the shadow exactly as he was told, should we take the reality of the body of Christ? Should we take the new covenant church? Should we take the church and should we seek to pattern it after some other pattern? No. This is the administration, the new covenant. We are to make it knowing that Christ is the one who actually makes it after the pattern shown to us in the word of God. Verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. His ministry after the order of Melchizedek is better than the ministry after the order of Levi. The old covenant priesthood was inferior to the new covenant priesthood. And we are priests, brothers, after the order of Melchizedek. Inasmuch as he is mediator of a better covenant, a better covenant. Remember that word, remember we talked about this word, covenant, diatheke, or Hebrew, berit. A better covenant. Well, we're told we're in the same covenant with Abraham. We're told that we have this covenant, that we have the promises, and there's no nullifying of the promises given by the adding of later promises. That's what Galatians says. So how is it a better covenant? Well, the word covenant here is being used to refer to the idea of a better outward form for it. The, the old covenant, new covenant, what's happening here is the change of the outward thing. And then the substance of a covenant is promises, right? So you go, people go to this and they'll say, ah, here it is, here's the proof. We're not in the same covenant with Abraham. We're not in the same covenant with Moses. We're not in the same covenant. There are different covenants. So now we have to break them apart. This covenant of works, covenant of grace thing is a man-made invention imposed upon the scriptures. And here it is in Hebrews 8, 6. He's a mediator of a better covenant with better promises. What is a covenant but promises? And so the substance of the covenant has changed. It's a different covenant. We're not in the same covenant with Moses. That's the, this is the text that people go to. But you still have to deal with Paul saying, later covenants don't nullify later covenants, earlier covenants. Later covenants don't nullify earlier covenants. So how is it a better covenant? It's a better administration of the covenant. It's All that gets talked about here is a change of the outward, not a change of the promise of salvation. Let's look down. And the better promises, what is that about? Does the old covenant promise justification by works and the new covenant justification by grace through faith? No, they are both promises of salvation by grace through faith. Moses was saved by grace just as much as you are. So the better promises are about to be explained. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, in other words, it had no <coughs> defect or failing, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, and this is a quote from Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Right? This is the Mosaic covenant. Because they did not continue in my covenant. So what's the defect? They didn't continue in the covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mouth and write them on their hearts. What is that? That's the promise to cause people to believe God's word, to remember God's word, and to apply God's word. Did God cause anybody to believe in the Old Covenant? Did God cause anybody in the Old Covenant to remember His Word? Did God cause anybody in the Old Covenant to apply His Word? So is this a total disjunction? Did the Old Covenant have no saved persons who understood and believed and applied God's Word at any point? No. This is about increase. So what is this saying? There's going to be more sanctification because more people are going to believe more truth and apply it more in the New Covenant. Okay, So there's going to be a deeper sanctification. He's going to write his laws in your minds. He's going to write them on your hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the Old Covenant, did God say he was the God of Israel? He did. Did he also say that they were his people? He did. So, what is the difference here? The difference is, it's going to be to a larger degree that the fact that he is their God will be manifest, and the fact that we are the people of God will be manifest. None of them shall say to his neighbor, and none his brothers, saying, Know the Lord. I don't know. Do you have to evangelize any of your neighbors, or disciple any of your brothers, or encourage anybody to grow in holiness or the knowledge of God still? I do. That's what I'm doing right now. So is this a total thing? Or is this the point that there's going to be a more effective evangelism because eventually the whole world will be converted? And there won't be any neighbors to evangelize. And your brothers will be mature. And the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. There was forgiveness of sins in the Old Covenant, but there are more people who are going to be forgiven in the New Covenant. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Does this just contradict Paul when in Galatians he says that the Old Covenant's not made nullified by a new one? No, they have to be talking about two different things or else the Bible contradicts itself and let's stop and go do something else. Paul is saying the old promises aren't ended. Hebrews is telling us that the change of the priesthood and the change of the service and the outward forms makes it so that the old forms are obsolete. They're passing away. And, oh wait, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What are we waiting for? The destruction of the temple. And when it's destroyed, guess what stops? the ministry of these earthly priests in the old shadow and copy. So this is all about the change of outward forms and about the fact that our simpler, less pompous, less outwardly glorious ministry is more powerful to sanctify more people, save more people. 
So this was all. When we think about Christ being a prophet who was not honored in his hometown, a part of helping to set up and prepare and show the difference between the old covenant and the new glorious, simple, transportable, international covenant. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?